The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guests on Off the Shelf are Lorraine Campos. She's a partner at Kroll & Mooring. David Dowd, he is a partner at Mayor Brown. Ryan Roberts is a partner at Shepherd Mullen, and Jason Workmaster is a member at Miller Chevalier Chartered. Uh, guys, welcome to the show. Hi, Roger. Well, hi, Ryan. Hey, How are you doing? Pleasure Thanks for having me. Good to be Thank here, you. Roger. Well, that's the quietest group of lawyers I've ever seen in my <laughs> life here. So, no. Um, so, it's great to have you guys on the show. Um, we're once again reprising the uh, legal panel from the Coalition Spring Conference. Um, where you guys covered the most interesting developments and, and important developments in uh, government contract law over the last 12 months. These, the, the, you know, this presentation is affectionately called or referred to as the Rogers, and this is the eighth annual sort of Rogers presentation. Uh, I guess it's a parody on the Oscars, perhaps, uh, if, I get it, if I understand it right. And it's, it is presented by the Academy of Procurement Arts and Sciences, so... Um, and you guys are, you know, the charter members of that. So um, thank you all for doing this. And we'll get into, we've got uh, about eight different categories. Is that right? There's best opportunity for additional storylines, best picture drama, best consolidation, a very long multifaceted program. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about that one. Best unique and artistic production, best sequel in an ongoing saga, best contracting vehicle in a supporting role, Best teaser. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one too. And best ending, everyone saw coming. So those are the categories from this year that you guys identified, and we should get right into it. Uh, so best opportunity for additional storylines. Okay, and the Roger goes to. Is this David Dowd? Yes, it is. Okay, David. <laughs> Thanks, Roger. Uh, the best opportunity for additional storylines, and the Roger goes to the Section 809 report. Um. As some members of the audience may know, the Section 809 refers to a panel that was chartered under the uh, NDAA from a few years back, uh, 2016. The panel was looking across, has been looking across a wide spectrum of acquisition laws and policies, looking for potential changes, areas of improvement. And in the course of that effort, um, in January of this year, 2019, uh, the 809 panel issued the last Volume, a three-volume set. So of how third, many pages, David? Is this is this of uh, total <laughs> twenty-two hundred pages? Which I did a quick count is like the first four or five Harry Potter novels. Lovely, <laughs> just, just as exciting, isn't it? <laughs> just right. as exciting. And then if you add the appendixes and whatnot, right? It's longer than the far, right? <laughs> it is longer than the far. Um, Dubious so distinction. <laughs> kind of fun there. Um, there's so much to cover, as you can imagine. There were almost a hundred uh, recommendations in total from the panel. We can't do them all today. Um, I guess, but um, I wanted to hit a couple of high points. Uh, first, and this is really out of the last of the three volumes, uh, the panel introduced this concept of a readily available uh, market, you know, a special category of procurements. You'd have basically three lanes total. You'd have readily available products and services. You'd have customized products and services, and then defense unique uh, 
products, services, something engineered uh, directly in response to a government uh, need, particular government need. Readily available is kind of really where I wanted to focus most. Um, the concept here would be, according to the panel, there would be a dollar threshold set. $15 million was the amount that the panel suggested. Under that amount, government could issue oral solicitations, use emails, some sort of market-based means of identifying contractors and making award. No requirement to publish uh, a solicitation of any sort. The only requirement being to publish an announcement when an award has been made. Uh, a couple of other interesting features of it. The uh, contracting officer would have the authority to waive the registration in SAM for small and non-traditional contractors. Uh, that's the system for award management. Um, and the theory behind the readily available uh, avenue, if you will, is that the government, and it's a question, I guess, for the panel, that the government has been struggling over time with acquiring truly commercial products and services. Uh, the government somehow is unable to, whether it's through the multiple award schedule program or Part 12 or other means, is not able to acquire products and services all, with with speed and efficiency uh, of the sort that the government needs. So then they're going to use oral solicitations. Will that be considered the whisper rule of some sort? That would be the whisper rule. I mean, just imagine <laughs> that. You call the, the contracting officer, just checks out a couple of contractors, issues an email to one or two, $14 million effort you don't even hear about until I mean, after the award is made. Easy. I mean, I, I don't. I, and you know, we we've talked about this at the conference. That is one I I just I I don't see happening. Out of the hundred recommendations, <laughs> and we talked about this as well. At the conference. What what do you think? Like, well, I mean, I think we should take a, dozen. a poll out of a hundred recommendations. How many do we think will actually move forward? I say five. Five. Okay. Five. Ryan, what do you think? Oh, I wanted to go last so I could pull up prices right and do one. <laughs> <laughs> is there a lifeline so four, we can call? Three, here? I'll, I'll go four. Okay. Oh wow. So well, I, I analogize this whole thing to increasing the micro-purchase threshold to $15 million. Yeah. That's essentially what, the, what, what it's doing, right? Because they're going to waive a lot of government requirements as well, theoretically, and, and you know, in terms of compliance requirements, let alone notice you know, and opportunity to compete. Um, I'd like that, the whisperer rule. I like that concept. <laughs> hey, I got a deal for you. <laughs> Something tells me that'll be a problem. I, I, I don't. I, what, I, what's the percentage here? I, I would. I would. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I could see a number being implemented. Maybe as many as ten or twelve. But I think they're going to be minor things. I think we'll get like a standard definition of subcontract. That would be I think, lovely. I think that will happen. Okay. But as a but a total sea change in creating this readily available market that there's really no rules. Fifteen million doesn't sound very micro to me. I'd be very surprised if that happened. I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm thinking twenty. I'm going to oh, go high wow. here. Wow! You guys can Bold check me prediction. on this next year. Okay. Well, we'll see. I, yes, we'll come back and we'll see. <laughs> well, they, yeah, uh, if, if any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to keep this thing rolling. So okay. we got to go to the next category, and it's best picture. And Ryan, you're up. Best Picture Drama. Oh, drama. Excuse me. Drama. I'm sorry. And sorry. the drama. Didn't you host this at the at the uh, training conference, right? So I've screwed up already. I yeah. <laughs> I'll do my best. So for, for those Roger enthusiasts out there, you'll remember that this particular program won Best Picture Drama last year as well. So the Roger for Best Picture Drama in 2019 goes to Section 846, 
the fiscal year 2018 NDAA. Um, so I'm sure all of our listeners out there know about the program, but just one minute of background here. This particular section uh, directed GSA and OMB to establish a program for the government to buy through commercial e-commerce portals. And GSA and OMB went through a three-phase, or in the process of going through a three-phase process to establish this program. And in phase one, GSA and OMB identified three existing commercial marketplace portal models that could be used for this program. Um, Leading up to phase two, the drama was which model or models will they pick for their proof of concept? And the phase two report was finally released in early May. And we found out that GSA and OMB have decided to proceed with just one of the three models. And as you can imagine, that left a lot of contractors disappointed. Um, so there are four big takeaways I had from this report. And, and the first so, is Ryan, just, just the, that. the models are there's an e-marketplace model, right? Right. E- yes. And then e-procurement model. And e-commerce. And e-commerce. So a little e- confusing. Yeah, e-commerce <laughs> is sort of like the idea of companies selling their own stuff on their own site. Right. E-marketplace is what it, sound, it sounds like. It's multiple sellers on a site competing and the and the, and site the host itself can compete well. theoretically as right. well and then e-procurement is sort of like software business as a service right an overlay on yeah. top of the yeah. websites now to can't help they just take e off and call it commerce <laughs> where's the fun <laughs> where's that? <laughs> <laughs> that, that that'd be too straightforward <laughs> <laughs> sorry so looking ahead to the next couple months here, that there's a lot of drama around what this program is going to look like, what this proof of concept is going to look like, and whether or not it's going to be able to survive legal challenges. So GSA and OMB have announced they're going to release a draft solicitation at some point in June with the hopes of awarding contract to portal providers by the end of the year. Um, obviously, because we've only chosen one of the three models here, there are a number of disappointed contractors. I don't think it would surprise anyone on the panel to see a little protest activity <laughs> about what model should be used here. And interestingly, just this week, we saw a markup of the House Armed Services Committee's uh, 2020 NDAA, which um, has a couple different amendments that would actually require GSA and OMB to test all three models. So besides the protest activity, we could actually see some legislation dictating to GSA and OMB how they're going to have to administer this proof of concept. So that was the first big issue that we saw with the phase two report. Second was data. There was a, a large discussion about transactional data and whether the portal providers can access it to their competitive advantage. The 2019 NDAA had language explicitly prohibiting portal providers from using transactional well, data. marketplace providers. Right, right. right. For, for using that data for their competitive advantage, and, and the, so, the so, providers were upset by this. So they have to collect the data, look at it, but not use it. That's, in theory, yeah. how this would and, work. Yeah, for their own competitive that, purposes. For their own competitive purposes. Right. right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So the, the big takeaway there, as you can probably guess, is suppliers weren't happy about that. There's no controls in place to ensure the providers wouldn't be using it to their competitive advantage. The providers, on the other hand, claim they need this data to run the program effectively. The report kind of leads it open-ended. It acknowledges the issue, but doesn't really say how they're going to proceed. They're just going to monitor the use of the data going forward. So again, another drama point there. Right. And Ryan, we'll take a break and you can cover, I guess you got a couple other points on the e-commerce and then we can move on to the other two categories. My guests today are uh, Lorraine Campos from Kroll & Mooring, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, Ryan Roberts from Shepard Mullen, and Jason Workmaster from Miller & Chevalier. And we're talking about the most interesting developments 
like the most interesting man, the most interesting developments in in the legal world over the past procurement year. I am Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Lorraine Campos from Crowell Mooring, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, Ryan Roberts from Shepard Mullen, and Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. And we're doing the Rogers Award, the most interesting, significant developments over the last procurement uh, year in terms of in law in the legal area, government contracts area. And Lorraine, oh, first, Ryan, you got to finish up on e-commerce real quickly. What are the other couple issues you wanted to identify? Yeah, just to wrap up, this is best picture drama. We're talking about Section 846. We just talked about the potential legal challenges to the program and the use of transaction data. Two other important points to consider here. The Phase 2 report mentions that agencies were hoping GSA would include services in this new portals program. That's something GSA doesn't have the statutory authority to do currently. So just something to keep an eye out in the horizon, whether or not they get added to the program down the road. And lastly, uh, this kind of goes without saying, but there is a clear, in my mind, impact to the schedules program, putting forward an alternative means through which the government can buy commercial products and services. Interestingly, as GSA has talked about this topic over the last month, they've kind of denied there will be any impact. They see it as impacting the open market purchases on on government purchase card and and think the GSA program will um, stand on its own and not have any impact. Obviously, part of this program is a request to increase the micro-purchase threshold up to 25 k for purchases made only through the portals. Um, So it's a little bit interesting to hear GSA think that for those $17,000 purchases, there won't be an impact on the schedules land when you have another vehicle through which none of the normal procurement regs apply. So those are the four big uh, drama points for Section 846. And call me crazy, but I wouldn't be surprised if 846 wins Best Picture Drama again next year. Okay, well, we'll we'll be watching for that. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Lorraine, best consolidation of a very long multifaceted program that that's like that's a that's the longest title ever for any uh, category we've had that the wins award in and of itself it does and but the award goes to a fascinating program the consolidation of the gsa schedule so as many people have heard there have been 24 schedule well the gsa plans on consolidating 24 schedules into one schedule That means there'll be one um, contract vehicle that contractors will be uh, awarded. Uh, They plan on a phased approach. So um, single schedule available for new offerers in fiscal year 2019. And those that, um, you know, troll in this area should be aware that the GSA has put out a uh, draft of, of that. I resemble that remark. Control <laughs> in this area? Okay. Um, there's a mass modification to transition companies that hold one schedule into a new GSA schedule that's supposed to be occurring in fiscal year 2020. And then the consolidation for companies that hold more than one schedule into one schedule. So that's two, three, 15, whatever, however many they have. That'll begin in 2020, um, and, but that's expected to take a lot longer. So what does this mean? That will be that there'll be approximately $10 million of commercial products sold under one set of terms. The benefit, well, for those that are hold multi, for those contractors that hold multiple schedules, as you can imagine, it's frustrating when um, when they have to deal with different contracting officers, applying terms inconsistently, or um, separate systems for contract administration. This is expected to be more efficient for government purchasers, the GSA, of course, and the customers, and the federal marketplace. We, you know, building on what we've heard. 
uh, elsewhere. The government wants to be more commercial in nature. So um, those that are supportive of this feel that this will be helpful in driving more um, and driving the government to be more commercial. What are some drawbacks? Um, obviously, those that have very um, sophisticated schedules often feel that their contracting officer is of the caliber that they you know, greatly understand not only their contract, but the industry as a whole. So we'll see how that works out, as, as well as contractors being divided amongst um, current schedule holders. Um, there's, uh, as, as you can imagine, special technical capabilities there. And some feel it's a bit amb ambitious to combine all the schedules in one swoop um, and suggested first combining schedules with similar services together. And then there's a question about TDR, those that, you know, that, are, that follow this academy year after year after year understand that the TDR has been a, um, uh, a, a fairly new, and I think it won an award last year, uh, program under the GSA schedules. That's transactional data reporting, right? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Transactional okay. data, TDR, yeah, TDR is a transactional yeah. uh, data reporting. Um, and as those uh, who are aware it's a pilot program um, where they uh, evaluate. I put those, that's air quotes right there. That's pilot air quotes, program. <laughs> pilot program. Uh, right, it's a pilot program that we don't think will be going away, but it enables the GSA to objectively measure evaluation uh, criteria um, on, a, on a horizontal basis. So um, as, you know, as Ryan has stated earlier, we'll see how that works with the uh, new portals that are being tested and the like. But for those contractors that have TDR for certain products or services, and then those who don't, we'll see how this all comes together under the new consolidated schedule program. So that's the best consolidation of a very long multifaceted program. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a mouthful right there in and of itself. You know, when people think about this too, for companies, they want to be thinking about their pre-existing BPAs in yes. particular as this well, thing consolidates. And as we heard at the conference from GSA itself, when they were talking about companies that currently have multiple schedule contracts, they want to, at the end of this, as they, as they, can, as they quote unquote consolidate and move to a single schedule, GSA, has, GSA already has a concern about, well, we have multiple contract numbers and the BPAs underneath those contract numbers and the task orders are tied to the contract number. We got to maintain these contract numbers somehow. So if you're a company that currently has multiple schedules, it just means you're going to, need to be very, very careful as you're, you know, go into this effort to, you know, quote unquote, consolidate. Right. And speaking of BPAs, maybe we'll talk about Ryan, the next category, best contracting vehicle in a supporting role. Is that BPA related? Or yeah, not? I think how about it that? Is. Uh, how about they, that? What I remember transition. the conference. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the Roger goes to the second generation information technology BPA's use of CTAs. It's not a long, long. I mean, people are making fun of my category. Yeah. That's a really long I was thing. Totally <laughs> the, the read. Read. That's very good. I was thinking the exact same thing. I didn't think you'd be dethroned so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so so this uh, procurement, it's called 2GIT for short, if that helps the others on the panel here. Um, is a successor to NetSense 2, so we're talking IT, product services, infrastructure. The NetSense 2 vehicle had both small and large procurement vehicles. Um, for this particular program, they've transitioned to a single contract, and they've identified nine awards will be made. And through the evaluation criteria provided by the solicitation, small businesses receive bonus points in the evaluation just for being small. So as you can imagine, a lot of dollars on the line here. Small businesses want to participate. The unique challenge, though, 
is that the evaluation focuses on how many different products you have from over 300 OEMs. For small businesses, it's tough to put together a portfolio of 300 OEMs worth of products. So their challenge became, how do we put together a proposal that checks all of these boxes and allows us to get our small business credit? Through the solicitation and the Q&A that followed, uh, GSA announced that CTAs would be allowed under the program. CTAs are? Contractor team arrangements. So those Lorraine, in the you GSA could be the host. I could, <laughs> but then it wouldn't be the Rogers anymore. <laughs> uh, contractor team arrangements allow usually two, maybe three partners to come together, submit a proposal, sometimes and perform more. a contract. Sometimes more. And it's like foreshadowing. Thank you, Lorraine. Uh, where we're having these teams put together for 2GIT, what we're seeing is individual teams comprised of 10, 15, 20, or more team members so as to check as many OEM boxes as you can and submit a competitive proposal. So this follow-on contract that was intended to consolidate all this IT purchasing to nine awards now you're going to have one award being made to a CTA team that consists of 20, we'll say, for the sake of argument, members. So if we've got nine different awards and 10 to 20 per award, are we really consolidating anything through this creative use of like the use opposite of, of consolidation. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it kind of undermines the whole purpose of putting together a team. You're going to have individuals, and this was all fleshed out through the Q&A, individual team members serving as the lead on individual orders which is a little bit creative. Typically under a CTA, you have one team lead that's in charge of all the administrative stuff like invoicing, shipping, order fulfillment. This has become the Wild West with a number of different participants. So um, I think this was a great award for creative use of contracting vehicle. What do you think, Roger? Uh, I'm speechless. No. <laughs> that's no I want to thank the Academy. No. <laughs> um, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing to watch how this is all going to shape out, and um, you know if you if you do think there's possibility for you know litigation around whether it's a protest to you know given the scope that you have to have on it. Is there anybody left to protest? Well, that, that's yeah, you need well, to have standing. You need yeah, they're all in the team together, right? <laughs> right. 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 So, um, but really fascinating thing to watch as it moves forward to see uh, you know. How, whether this, you know, how this meets the customer needs, I guess, right? Right. So it'll be interesting. And you know what, you guys? We're already up on the break. Um, when we come back, we'll continue our presentation of the Rogers Awards. Um, I, my guests today are Lorraine Campos, partner at Crowell Mooring, David Dowd, partner at Mayor Brown, Ryan Roberts, a partner with Shepard Mullen, and, of course, Jason Workmaster, a member at Miller Chevalier Chartered. Um, I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Lorraine Campos from Crowell Mooring, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, Ryan Roberts from Shepard Mullen, and Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. And we're we're the Academy of Procurement Arts and Sciences is presenting the eighth annual Rogers and the, the awards for the most interesting developments in government procurement law over the past year. And in this segment, we're going to start, David, with the best sequel for an ongoing saga. And the Roger goes to Jedi. And Jedi refers to the and joint— And the force be with you. And may the force be with you. It refers to the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, J-E-D-I, Jedi— 
Um, and what Jedi is, and Jedi also received an award last year. Um, at that time, Jedi was a draft RFP. Um, Jedi has now become a, a, an issued RFP in which proposals have been submitted. Um, what the procurement is for is a single award IDIQ, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract for cloud services. So it's a commercial service. And DOD has decided to make a single award for up to you know, 10 or so billion dollars uh, over a decade or so for cloud services. That's one of the hottest areas um, in IT services today. Um, and DOD opted to pursue a single award approach. Um, now, by statute and by regulation, there is a preference for multiple awards when the government uh, decides to use an IDIQ contract vehicle. But there are also certain provisions that say there are circumstances when the government shouldn't use multiple award contracts. Um, and here, DOD picked three reasons why uh, a single award approach was the way to go. Uh, one was uh, that market research showed that the government wouldn't get better terms and conditions um, with a multiple award than a single award. Two, that the expected benefits um, from having multiple awards were outweighed by the cost of administration. And finally, it was in the government's best interest to do that. Now, there's a provision in statute that would say the government can use a single award IDIQ when the services at issue are so integrally related, it wouldn't make sense to go with multiple awards. Interestingly, DOD didn't, didn't pick that approach here. Um, so in any event, DOD decided to go with the single award approach. There was a protest filed uh, last year at GAO. Uh, that protest was denied around the end of the year, I think. Um, and three issues there. One was whether or not the single award approach was okay. Second issue was whether or not the specifications were unduly restrictive. And then finally, there was, probably most interestingly, there were allegations that certain government personnel, people who were government personnel at the time, who were involved in crafting the RFP had a conflict of interest because they had been, uh, they had a relationship with one of the prospective offerors for the contract. After the GAO protest was denied, um, a protest was filed uh, by the same contractor at the Court of, U.S. Court of Federal Claims, where it's now pending. Uh, there should be arguments on that, I think, in July, um, the arguments that the judge will hold. The conflict issue is sort of front and center. Um, and so this is going to be one of the more closely watched protest cases of the year, I think. Um, for very Do you think it's going to be closely community? watched because of the issues or because of the volume of how big this yeah, is? Yeah, I, mean, I think, too. It's a small contract, Yeah, it's it? a small contract. You know, $10 billion contracts for, <laughs> for IT services come around every day. Um, <laughs> I think it'll be closely watched for that. I think it'll be closely watched, too, for two other reasons. One, um, the conflict issue will be intriguing. And two, there's been this swirl lately in protests about, you know, two bites and should we have two different protests for us? We have GAO and the Court of Federal Claims. Should somebody be able to go to both of them? Yeah, and this, this case this, presents one of those. Yeah, this will become Exhibit 1 in the next round of talk about yeah, this the weather, on the NDAA. Yeah, if the yeah. protester wins, maybe you should. If the protester yeah. Loses, maybe you shouldn't. How you know. many bites of the apple? I mean, there's a big apple there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big, big apple. apple. <laughs> you know, interesting, a, a plot twist on this, and it sort of shows why, I guess, I don't think of a second bite, but having two protests for is maybe the way to go. In February, DOJ moved for a stay of proceedings to allow for additional examination of the, of the conflict issue uh, to be undertaken. And I think it, it shows to me that there are times when certain issues will only come to light or, or could only come to light if you do have a chance to further pursue it, you know, GAO, that issue didn't arise at GAO sufficient that the government thought additional investigation was warranted, but the government decided on its own. 
in February of this year that additional investigation should be undertaken. So, so we it, need, it helps the government. It helps the government to, to have, have more time and opportunity. Right, to take a look at something. And obviously it's a huge award. It's going to be, you know, billions of dollars for a commercial service. That could tie in the government for up to a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With one contract. Tour, right? With one contract. Is there not a theme here? Uh, <laughs> yeah. We like consolidation. Right? All, all, all of these. We like it except when we don't. <laughs> so we don't yeah. um, because, you know, even though we'll have consolidation, this vehicle won't be an exclusive vehicle. So in theory, agencies could go and buy cloud services outside of the contract, too. Okay. Um, so let's get on to the next category. Um, and the next category is Best Unique in Artistic Production and Lorraine. And this goes to some of our kind of I, I also think this could be kind of what's the wild, wild west of new areas. And so this this award goes to the other transaction authority. So that's commonly referred to as OTA. Um, it's the um, authority under 10 USC 237-1B to allow the government to carry out certain prototype research and production projects. Um, so what is an OTA? I think it's better explained by what it's not. So what is it not? It's not a contracting vehicle that has the FAR. Um, it gives the government the flex. It's not a FAR-based contract. It's not a CRADA. It's not a cooperative agreement. It gives the government the flexibility and, necessi- and the flexi- flexibility necessary to adopt and incorporate business practices that reflect commercial industry standards and best practices into its award instruments. Um, so, so. When you think about it, it's an agreement, and for government contractors that are used to the FAR, it's an agreement that takes away the FAR, takes away your government cost accounting standards, takes away most procurement statutes, and so it's the wild west of agreements. Um, They're generally limited to prototype projects. Um, The DOD policy guidelines allow for flexible definition of what that means, and while OTAs are mostly still used for traditional R&D activities, recent awards are focused on cloud migration cybersecurity services. They've also become pretty large. I mean, not Jedi large, but um, it's there's been a 650% increase from 2013 to 2017. Um, and uh, from in the 809 report, um, from fiscal year 2016 to 2018, potential OT values of $40 billion um, and actually $4.2 billion spent. Um, so what are we seeing how? We're seeing that the idea is, and as we move forward, that Traditional non non defense contractors are drawn to the OTAs, um, and also um, traditional defense contractors are getting in on this as well by setting up consortiums um, and um, and going after this funding. So potential benefits: um, it's providing a mechanism to pool R and D resources with industry to facilitate development of and obtain the latest quote unquote state of the art dual use technologies. Supposedly, they're attracting non-traditional contractors with promising technologies and capabilities to work with DOD. They're lowering costs to eliminate requirements associated with the FAR, you know, those pesky FAR requirements. And they're speeding up the acquisition process. So you know, those FAR requirements lead me to a question for the for the for the panel. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, would you be surprised to see FAR clauses being used in these agreements? Because I mean, to me, that's what the government knows. Are you seeing that or? Yeah, you'll. Uh, in my experience, Brian yeah. first. Okay. Yeah, I, I think we talked about this at the conference a little bit. We, we've seen them in two flavors: one where it is the Wild West and it's not a traditional contract vehicle, and one that looks exactly like every other contract that we've seen throughout our practice. So I think you're right. There is a little comfort and familiarity. You end up seeing clauses in these agreements that they were designed specifically to exclude. 
Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, one of the reasons why you see those clauses is, is speed. Um, you know, a lot of the clauses in the FAR have been worked over the course of decades, right? And by, the contract by officers people like you. And we know how they work. And we both the government work. and the contractor are familiar with them. And another thing is, you know, when the, when the, when these, do, these do need to be carefully reviewed by contractors. I've seen them where your disputes, you know, under your normal FAR disputes clause, uh, you know, covered by the Contract Disputes Act, you've got six years to bring an action against to to raise a claim against the government if you're the contractor. Under, uh, but I've seen OTAs that cut that from six years to two years. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that could dramatically right. change, you know, your pursuit of your rights. So, right. still read your contract, right? A- amen. <laughs> um, also, I think getting to what David said, there's certainly, I think, it's almost like a, you know, from like you said, the familiarity, I, I, almost like a, you know. Almost like a um, um, uh, basis from which contracting officers are simply used to to working from. So, I and, this, I and Lorraine's Civil False Claims Act would be applicable here. This is an agreement, right? People are going to pay it. Is that I meant, is that I fair mean, to say? Yes. Okay. Yes. Still submitting claims for payment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, and that could very well be the single biggest disincentive to people participating in government contracting <laughs> is they don't want to have to deal with the Justice Department down the road, and yeah. OTs don't do anything about that. True, but you know they're unique and they're artistic. And, um, <laughs> they got an award, and they got an award. <laughs> so there you and go. Uh, you know, it's it's something new. And I think that those that are that are familiar with OTAs are you know intrigued by them. Uh, companies that are not or not traditional government contractors have heard about them, and it's something that obviously is should be kept in mind and and closely read and negotiated. Right. Thank you, Lorraine. And you know we're up on the break, and we have two categories left for the next segment. Um, my, uh, my guests today are Lorraine Campos from Crowell & Mooring, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, Ryan Roberts from Shepard Mullen, Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guests today are Lorraine Campos from Crowell Mooring, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, Ryan Roberts from Shepard Mullen, and Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. And we're we're you know awarding the Rogers once again, um, you know identifying the most interesting and significant sort of legal developments over the past year or programs that have legal implications, all that good stuff. Um, and we have the la- we're in the last segment. And we have the last two categories. And Jason, let's start with the best teaser. Sure. So the best teaser, Roger, this year goes to the Granston memo on the dismissal of non-intervened key TAM cases, which is now incorporated in what's called the Justice Manual. So this this topic, this award involves everybody. One of you know a topic that I'm sure is near and dear to everyone, certainly to me, is the Civil False Claims Act which is the government's principal tool for fighting procurement fraud. So the Granson memo, as, as, as many listeners probably know, the uh, Civil False Claims Act, uh, False Claims Act cases can be brought either by the government itself or by a key TAM relator, often called a whistleblower. Um, those cases are brought under seal. The, you won't even know if you're the defendant. You may not even know you've been sued. Probably a decent chance you won't. The government will intervene while the case is under. I'm sorry. The, the government will will investigate while the case is under. Hopefully, seal. they don't intervene. Hopefully, right? they don't intervene. Your your goal here <laughs> is that they don't intervene. So they will investigate. The government will investigate 
Uh, those investigations can often take a long period of time. They're supposed to take six months, but they can go on for years. Um, your outside counsel during that period of time, if they, if you get wind of these, of you know, if you get a subpoena or you get a civil investigative demand, you become aware there's something brewing against you. Your goal is going to be to keep the government out of your case. But at the end of the government's investigation, the government will make the Justice Department will make a decision as to whether they will intervene in the case and take it over uh, from the relator or they won't. Uh, and then the case will, uh, if they don't intervene, the case comes out from under seal and the relator then has the ability to go on and litigate the case on behalf of the government uh, in the hope, the relator's hope is to get a, a recovery that well, they'll then get a share of. All right, so the Granston memo uh, addresses uh, when the government now, – now, under the False Claims Act, the government has the authority, the Justice Department has the authority to, in a non-intervene case, to come in and dismiss the case out from under the relator. So that is the subject that the Granston memo uh, addresses. And during this, under the current administration, I think it is fair to say, there has been at least – you know what we hear coming out of the Justice Department has been more – Defendant friendly, and so the Granston memo is a you know this formal and now it's been incorporated into formal Justice Department guidance. The factors that are to be considered by uh, a United States a United States attorney when they're deciding whether to dismiss uh, a case, and historically that's like uh, pulling the rug under out under the yeah house, it's right? it's it's shutting it down and historically you know uh, the Justice Department has been very reluctant overall. Uh, to dismiss uh, key TAM relators' cases, even ones they haven't intervened in, because it's not exactly politically popular. I mean, I've had cases where I've had government attorneys say, that's the kind of thing that gets me called up to Capitol Hill. I'm not going to do it because that's polit- – nobody nobody runs on the pro-fraud plank. And so nobody – you know, Justice Department attorneys are very skittish about dismissing uh, key TAM cases. But we have seen – uh, yeah, just they, they let the courts do it. Right? They let the As courts do it, but we have seen we have seen some movement. We have seen the Justice Department uh, doing a little bit of this, and you know the factors that are let, laid out the memo they really shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. That the factors that are to be considered are you know does the case lack merit? Well, if the case, you know of course if the case. I'm sure it's a shock to everybody that that's a consideration. Wild consideration. Is it <laughs> opportunistic? Is it opportunistic? You know, is it, is it interfere with it with an agency's policies or programs? Does the government have certain litigation uh, prerogatives that they think are at stake if this case is allowed to go on? Is there classified information that could potentially be evolved that government wants, you know, doesn't want to even have the chance of it leaking out? Those kinds of issues. Um, of course, the memo also says that dismissals will remain the exception rather than the rule. I'm sure that is also very shocking to people. Uh, one thing that is interesting to note, however, and there's not just just been within the last couple of weeks, there's been some. Uh, some uh, uh, case law activity on this. You know, there is a depending on where you are in the country, different your, different circuit courts approach the question differently of whether the just when the Justice Department comes in to dismiss one of these cases, there are some courts that will say that is an unfettered right that is not reviewable. So if the government, if the Justice Department comes in and dismisses a case in those jurisdictions, that's the end of the story. But what does the manual say? Well, <laughs> the manual, the manual, the manual is silent. The just, <laughs> but the Justice Department's uh, overall position on this, of course, is that it, that it's their prerogative to do this. But there are courts that have said, no, 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 no. If you move to dismiss uh, uh, government, we are still the judge is still going to come behind you 
and determine if the you know if the court thinks that the reason that the case should be dismissed is there a justifiable reason for the dismissal and so depending on where you are in the country you'd have different rules on that but that's the that's the Granston memo in a nutshell again it's now in the justice manual so um, I see why it's called the Best teaser. It, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's yeah, like, it's a great, it's a great tease. A, yeah, I mean, yeah, oh, yeah. Here, look, look, maybe, maybe we'll come, <laughs> maybe FCA defendant will come yeah. in and help you. Maybe not. That, right. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, and Jason, then the last category for the Rogers for this past year is best ending everyone saw coming. Yes, absolutely, and we're sticking with the False Claims Act for the last category. The best ending everyone saw coming is the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on the False Claims Act statute of limitations. Um, this case went up. So the Supreme Court uh, was uh, oral arguments heard on it. Uh, 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 ruling just came out uh, in May. It's in the Cochise Consultancy case. Um, the question in the case was again in these non-intervened Ketam cases. The, the, the Civil False Claims Act has a statute of limitations that says that a Civil False Claims Act case has to be brought either within six years of when the violation occurred. So think of when the alleged you know, fraudulent invoice gets submitted to the government. That's the violation. The government has six, the, uh, one of these cases has to be brought within six years of that or, or within three years of when the government knew or should have known of the violation up to 10 years after the violation. And that gets the question a little is tricky. who's the government? And- the question is who's the government and can the key TAM relator ever – there were some jurisdictions that had said – that a key TAM relator in a non-intervened case, the case had to be brought within six years, period. That the key TAM relator was not entitled to rely on this longer period that could extend the statute up to 10 years from the violation. There were some courts that had said that. There was an, another another circuit court had said, oh, no, um, uh, the, uh, the key TAM relator can rely on that longer period, but the key TAM relator's own knowledge of the violation starts the clock running. There's, okay, there was a court that— Isn't that— a little bit ridiculous. The, well, Our own knowledge. Isn't that writing, rewriting the law? Uh, <laughs> that, that, that your own knowledge. Well, the, 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 but defendants like that rule for okay. the most part. Defendants like that rule for the most part because that meant that if you're the if the key tamer later knows about it, the clock is running. Period. The, nobody yeah. in the, nobody no sense. government employee has to know. Then the third rule that a court had articulated was. The relator's own knowledge does not start the clock running. It's only when the quote-unquote responsible government official knows, and that is not the relator. So that's the issue that went up to the Supreme Court. Based on the oral argument that occurred earlier this year, everybody was thinking it's clear that the court is going to say that the relator can take advantage of this longer period of time, reverse the, you know, overturn the uh, uh, decisions from lower courts that had said the relator could not, and that's exactly what happened. So that's the ending everybody saw coming uh, in a unanimous. De- so the Supreme Court can't agree on some things. And this was something the Supreme Court could agree on, yeah. that relators are entitled to the longer period of time. They did so, did so on the basis of you know, a, a textual reading of the statute. Uh, and they came out you know, on this issue of you know, the relator can rely on it. And, and they said the relator is not a responsible government official that starts a three-year clock running. So on that score... The decision was about as bad for potential FCA defendants as it could be, but but there is one silver lining, and that's this. The Justice Department in that case had argued that the only person that could be the responsible government official to start the clock running is a uh, Justice Department attorney responsible for prosecuting the fraud. Now, that would mean – now, and the Supreme Court declined to adopt that view. 
Thank goodness. Because what that means for contractors is that we, you know, your defense lawyers can still continue to argue that your, con your contract officer, officer knew, yeah. your auditors knew, and that that knowledge started the running. It didn't have to wait until it percolated up to okay. a Justice Department attorney. So question, just a quick question. So that's the same Justice Department who you just talked about the memo that was trying to <laughs> make it easier. That's to the same say, Justice that Department. That is also trying to extend the statute of limitations. What are you trying to say, Roger? <laughs> 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 Uh, well, you know what, guys? We're already up at the end of the show. I'll go around real quick. Anything you're looking for next year, Ryan, in terms of potential awardees? I think you mentioned maybe 846. Yeah, or... I, personally, I think 846 is going to, especially for commercial item folks listening in, I think that's going to be the most interesting program to follow. David? Yeah, I, think, I think we'll see Jedi back. Okay. Predict. I think we're going to have 20, um, 20, what is it? 20, Recommendation? 20 recommendations. Oh, um, um um, from the 809 panel report? From the 809 panel, actually um, implemented. Right. Jason? And, uh, what I was going to say, it's going to be that standard definition of subcontract. That's what, That'll be the real The kicker. big one? Oh, okay. yeah, that'll be okay. the kicker for this next well, year. Well, I want to thank my guest today for you know, sharing the Rogers with the uh, listening audience once again. Uh, Lorraine Campos from Crowell Mooring, David Dowd from Mayor Brown, Ryan Roberts from Shepard Mullen, and Jason Workmaster from Miller Chevalier. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.